Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs. And become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening, and enjoy the show. The darkness has found you. Welcome to Season 4, Episode 14. I'm your host, Jason Hill, and you are all players in the grand stage that is my life. Or, if you're hearing this and I'm not in the room, then I'm a player in the grand stage of your life. That's dramaturgy, baby. So, uh, you want to go get a coffee? Tonight's triple feature comes from the wildly talented Saros Nikita, and that sticky, icky body horror she does so very well. So let's dive right in, shall we? You're listening to the standard edition of this program. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy ad-free versions of this and all our other episodes, as well as hundreds of tales from our audio archives dating back to 2012, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today to get instant access from our friends at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Thank you for your support. Now, allow me to escort you to a place where the sun dies and nightmares come to life. Welcome, listener, to the Horror Hill. You haven't found the darkness. The darkness has found you. And now, without further ado, from author Saris Nikita, I give you Boom World. Sita and Tay had never seen a Christmas tree because they were both born after the boom. The radiation burned the trees into crunchy red shells like fried skin. And things as wise as trees decided that the soil was too bitter and life was not worth a second try. Rosie's bones were getting softer. 
She knew Tay's time was also nearing its end because his seizures were getting worse. After, sometimes Tay would forget to speak and confuse which things were for eating and which were for wearing and which were for putting in the latrine. Sita's mind was still strong, and her body was holding together best of the three, but that was worse for her because she would start to bleed soon, and that meant she would be pregnant soon, and pregnant soon, and pregnant soon, again and again, until it was over for her, because that was the law, and her body was strong, but not that strong. These things were sad, but that kind of sadness was too big. Rosie knew that if she let it worm inside her, it could grow into a blackness so pure that it could swallow her whole. But the missing Christmas tree was a small sadness, and small sadness was okay to feel because perhaps they might know the end of it. So, Rosie and Tay and Sita put on their shoes with the iron soles and left Home Bunker to look for a Christmas tree. The bazaar was full of tents and smells and mouths rolling with words that Rosie could not hear because the boom had shattered the bones inside her ears. Sita and Tay could not understand either because Rosie's broken ears meant she could not teach her brother and sister about words that traveled between tongues and ears. Here were booths with cloth and soap and boxes to bury in. Here was a tent with sheep, one large and ten small. The large sheep was enormous and lumpy and made pain noises that did not stop. The small sheep were fluffy and brown and blind. Their legs were like strings that did not hold them up. They bleated at Sita, who scratched their ears and laughed. Tay kept close to Rosie and squeezed his sister's big hand with his small one. Tay's two whole fingers, the ones with fingernails, pressed into Rosie's palm, and the three that ended in bulb-shaped stumps folded beneath them like a row of lead slugs. Sita pressed close to Rosie's other side, copying her footsteps to avoid sinking into the sizzling boom mud. She steadied herself with the stump of Rosie's elbow even though there was no elbow anymore beneath the stiff brown wrap that Rosie never took off, and that never stopped oozing whatever yellow boom stuff was eating her up from the bone part out. Here at last was the booth that sold plants, flimsy things sprouting from tin cans and pieces of tire. Rosie took a crumpled scrap of paper from her pocket. The scrap was an old, old thing, a piece of picture book, a Christmas tree with shimmering boxes down below. Rosie pointed, but the woman at the booth shook her head. They both looked down at Tay and Sita, peeking shyly from behind her legs. The woman looked thoughtful for a moment, then tugged Rosie's sleeve and motioned for them to wait. The tug rippled through Rosie's elbow and the melting bones inside shrieked. The woman lifted down a glass jar. Inside were six tiny specks of light, alive pieces of light, buzzing and twinkling on tiny wings that were only a little tattered with radiation blight. A long ago memory bloomed in Rosie of a time before the boom, of a bonfire laughing tongues of flame into a crisp, dusky sky as cotton fields spread beneath like spilled bits of bone cheese and fireflies. The little ones clapped their hands with delight. Rosie pulled out six long candles, candles she had rendered herself from fat that she did not want to think about, but the woman took only three in exchange. She patted the children's heads and spoke to them briefly, her face becoming serious, as if she spoke warning words. As Rosie had taught them, Tay and Sita nodded their heads as if they understood the woman's words perfectly. At home bunker, Rosie covered the lanterns and made the room dark so the fireflies looked even brighter and more beautiful. Tay and Sita put their faces close to the jar, eyes wide 
and the soft green glow against their scabbed skin made Rosie smile. Rosie paused an instant before she took the jar in both hands and unscrewed the cap. For a moment, the fireflies continued to swirl and loop inside their prison of glass. Then, sensing freedom, they exploded into the room. Like white-hot bullets, they shot through the concrete bunker, leaving smoldering firefly-sized holes in the curtains and furniture. Everything they touched burst into flames with a smell like electrical charge and burning hair. Rosie leapt to her feet, head whipping left to right. Tay began to seize. Rosie tried to catch his fall, and her elbow finally parted ways with the flesh of her arm, her severed hand and dripping strings dropping to the floor with a sound like tinned ham falling into mud. Rosie fell to her knees and saw that blood was pouring from Tay's ears. He had bitten his tongue in two. She looked at Sita and saw the girl's belly, imagined it stretched and ballooning, growing baby after baby until there was no life in Sita left to give. For a moment, Rosie clutched her own arm in one hand and Sita's in the other. Then, sensing freedom, she held the girl to her chest and laid down beside Tay. Faces up so they could both watch the dazzling glimmers of light whip through the black, black smoke like heavenly stars, shining behind a sky full of poisoned, boom-world clouds. Apartments.com has more pet-friendly rental listings than anywhere else. So, finding the perfect place is easier than ever, and so is finally moving in together. Just the two of you. It's a big step. Lots of new responsibilities. Lots of adjustments. Most likely, they'll wake you up at odd hours to go to the bathroom. And you'll most definitely find yourself in trouble coming home late for dinner. They might even unroll all your toilet paper next time. It's just what happens when you two find a new place together, but you're not doing it because you feel like it. No, you're doing it because you love them, because they're family. And that's why Apartments.com has the most pet-friendly rental listings on the internet, so that you and your furry family can find the perfect new place together. Apartments.com, the place to find a pet-friendly place. You've been listening to Boom World by author Saris Nikita. Oh, we are just getting started. Keep listening. I dare you. And now, from author Saris Nikita, I give you... Fish Boy. Come here, child. Light up one of them hurricane candles. I got a little story you've been asking about since you was just a little dot. Shh, now. Don't be looking so sad. The worst is over now. We should feel fortunate the good Lord has spared our home. Well, now, what do you mean he hadn't? Storm Cell is as good a home as anyone has in Tuskensonville right now. Why, Lawson's are as good as living out in the open. Tornado ripped the roof right off and tore the door clean off the cellar. You should count your lucky stars, your grandpa's such a right pious carpenter. Now, if all you'll keep quiet, I'm finally going to tell you about your brother. And after this, I reckon we never speak of him ever again. Shh, 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 don't cry, child. Fish boys living with the angels. I suppose you're old enough to hear the story now. And what else we gonna do while we wait out the storm? Shh, now, there, 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 there. Wipe your eyes. You'll eat up now. Your daddy and I made fish boy when he came back from the war in 44. We don't never talk about what happened to him there, you know that. But they must have hurt him bad. 
and they must have hurt him in ways that don't show as good as that gummy eye I came back with. I mean, I could have kept on loving him with the gum eye. Don't bother me much. Your Auntie Val was born with six toes in each foot, you know? And I still call her sissy. Like them extra toes ain't nothing out of the ordinary. Oh, shut up, Val. It ain't no secret. Anyone at all can see them extras plain as day. But anyhow, those German boxheads broke something else in your daddy. Something deep down. So deep he wasn't the same person when he came back home. Not at all. He'd be sitting there on the porch with his whiskey, and his eyes would glass over. And when I tapped him out of it, he'd be yelling about babies' heads sewn onto dog bodies and little girls stitched together three at a time, like them Siam twins we saw in the circus in Fatten. You remember, child? You ate sponge sugar, and your Aunt Val got sick from sausages. Well, I told you not to eat them nasty things, Val. I'm going to keep telling the story till you learn what's foolish to put in your yap. Now, when I was pregnant with Fish Boy, your daddy built a bassinet out of wood from the south fence that used to keep deer out of the butter beans. Remember that old butter bean plot? Sure you do. Used to rent it to the Jacobsons. They used to raise pigs till the little one came between the sow and her piglets and lost them three fingers. You remember what a barbecue we had after that? Sure you do. Slaughtered every last one of them fine, fat beasties. Not a one of them scaredy cat Jacobsons gone near pigs since then. Where was I? Ah, right. When your daddy was away, I let the whole plot go to Moss. And he, when I told him I was preg, he smiled real big. A crooked smile, I remember. First time he really started putting fear in me. But I guess the gum I was to blame back then. And he went out there and there was a whole mess of deer eating the sproutlings. Those and fawns and youngins. Your daddy shot them all, one after the next. Didn't skin them or flank them or tan them. Just stepped over them dead deer like I didn't even see them and went about uprooting the fence wood. Left them there to rot while he worked on that damn bassinet. He finished the thing right before Fishball was born. Oh, it was a terrible thing. I knew then for sure there was something wrong with your daddy. That bassinet looked like something out of one of them Halloween cartoon books. He didn't bother taking the nails out of the planks or smoothing out the splinters or smoking the spider eggs out of the cracks in the wood. When he put something in it, the whole thing just leaned right over and spilled it outside. He walked in a bedroom one day and put this creaky old bassinet in front of me, and he smiled real big, like he was doing what a husband should be doing. And then he went back outside to sit in the porch and drink his whiskey, pulling at the eyelashes on the gum eye, and just staring off into the woods. When Fishboy was born, he took one look at that little baby. That one big old leg with the flipper at the end, and the little baby holes where the nose should have been, and he threw that bassinet through the window and then went back to drinking the whiskey and pouring them eyelashes. Val told me later when I was nursing Fishball for the first time that he done pulled out every last eyelash that day, staring out into the woods. Window never did get fixed, Still taped over with a trash bag when the tornado took the walls that bounded it. Your daddy hated Fish Boy from the start. You was normal, and your four sisters, they was normal. So, your daddy knew it was something happening in the war that made his seed sour. He looked at Fish Boy and he saw something we didn't see. Something he hated. Something. 
It scared him such that made his mind not work quite right. He must have been seeing the walls of that Luckavald or Lukavald or whatever the name of that pink old prison he did that time in in Germany. He must have seen the faces of them sickos that did it to him. Made him crazy. He said the baby wouldn't live. The first night he slept on the sofa in the parlor and then he moved to the barn. Oh, this was October and the whole forest was already frosting at night. Said the baby was keeping him up. Even though Fishball was the quietest baby a lot of you. Couldn't really make much sound. Not much there in the way of pipes nor lips or nothing. But it didn't matter none. Your daddy said he could smell fish boy. Said he smelt like a great big bass just dragged out of the lake. Hooks still sticking out of the lip. Half a worm dangling down the cheek. He wouldn't let me give fish boy a name. And then, when the snow started falling... Right at the start of November, he moved back into the bedroom, and he made me move Fishboy down the cellar. Yes, ma'am. It's very cellar. See over there, where the furnace just barely overlaps with the first step? Hold this candle over there. Y'all see how the earth is patted down just so? That's where Fishboy slept. He wasn't much for seeing, even when he was born. We could tell that right away. Of course, the dark down there didn't help none. But Fishboy was blind by the time he got off the nip. He was sick a lot, too, on account of having a nose and being down here in the dank. Well, that pissed off your daddy even more. He said he couldn't eat at the table with Fishboy. The sounds... That gurgling sound stole his appetite away. So we started feeding him down there, too, your Aunt Val and I. Fishboy wasn't normal in the mind, either. Val and I tried reading to him, catalogs mostly, read him the entire fall home paper and paint collection from Sears and Roebuck. But he never would learn to talk other than, Oh, my when he wanted oatmeal and puh-puh when he needed to make water. All the while, your daddy got worse. God seemed to know it, too, because that's when the bad weather came. Your daddy'd wake up in the morning and take his hatchet off into the woods, and the sky'd get real dark, and you could see the cyclones start coming down in the distance. Branton, Gilbert, Asheville torn right apart. And your daddy would stay in the woods during all of it, in the hail and the cold. He'd come home wet and shaking and silent, with no wood, no groundhogs, no nothing. Nothing to show from what he'd been doing with that hatchet. Me? Well, I was afraid to ask. Wouldn't you have been? Of course, it wasn't bound to be Granton and Gilbert and Asheville forever. When we heard the siren, and we saw the face of that tornado. Biggin. The one that's why we're here in the cellar in the dark telling stories. Well, we knew it was coming for us. Your daddy looked at that cyclone and he went down the cellar. And I heard a sound like when you step on a cat's tail in the night on accident. Squealing, I suppose you call it. And he hauled fish boy up them steps and outside, and I yelled for him to come back in the cell and to bring back fish boy because even though he was what he was, he was my own child, grown in my own belly. But they couldn't hear nothing I said. It was all drowned out by the cyclone. Don't it just sound like a train whistle coming? Child, I lived in Nebraska my whole life and never stopped putting chills in my bones. I saw your daddy carrying Fishboy out across the field, both of them headed right into the path of that monster. Your daddy took Fishboy by the tail, 
and swung them around and around like one of them Olympic folks at the big stone balls. I kept watching as long as I could, screaming for them both to come on back, to come down the cellar where it's safe. And then, right before I went down the stairs myself, I saw the old daddy let go. Don't you know that Fishboy never touched the ground? He just got whipped right up into that cone. A tiny little fish boy, swirling around and around with all them shingles and chickens and the transmission of that 38 Chevrolet that Lawson's been keeping next to the apple tree since Jordan died. Your daddy? He just stood there and watched. I suppose the face of a wind tunnel can't be worse in prison in Germany. I tasted that sauerkraut once at the Grunwalds, and I tell you, it was just plain torture. I don't know how your daddy survived the twister, because it looked to me like he was right in the path of that monster with no way out. I suppose God must have saved his life, and saved him in other ways, too. He came back from the throat of that cyclone, walked down him cellar steps and put his arm around me, and I saw in his face something that changed. He had clarity. Like part of the crazy was gone, gone right into the eye of that twister. God took that little fish boy up into the sky, put him out of his suffering, and spared your father. Heck, God even put a dead five-point buck in the path of your daddy on his way back to us from the hollows, like manna from heaven. Your daddy's back. God's been good to us, child, and don't never forget it. And you best remember that when you feel like crying for your brother. I myself hope they never do find the body. We must never speak fish boy again after today. No sense inviting the demon back into your daddy. Now, let's just listen to the wind, Tech. Sounds to be winding down at last. And let's don't talk no more. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. You've been listening to Fish Boy by Saris Nikita. Just one more little sip. Come on. Don't you know all the cool kids are doing it? Mm-hmm. Wise choice. And now for the grand finale. From author Saris Nikita, I give you... Bog Dog. My hands were badly chapped that fall, the year we found Bog Dog. At least, that I remember. The ground iced in early September, a month and a half early, 
and we had to take the turnips from the earth with trowels. The soil was like pebbles of ice, and the turnip tops were stiffened with freezing juice that refroze in our hands as we sliced them off. When all the turnips were in, and Surrey and I went back to stitching the Christmas quilt, I remember how the yarns kept catching on the hardened trills of split skin that cracked my palms and fingertips. I remember how the dyed yarn would tug a crack so raw that it bled, leaving a muddy track of green or vermilion where the wetness of my blood had loosened the dye from the wool. Even with fair hands, I hated sewing, and I was no good at it, but I'm still not. But Sari could whip stitches so tight and even you'd swear she was a practiced seamstress, like the aged woman with the pork wine birthmark, who had stitched her tiny christening dress eleven years before. I was going on fifteen that winter. A storm was coming, and it was going to be a bad one. Pop could tell, because his big toe with the gout was swollen up as big as a red potato. He stood in the doorway with the woodshed and rolled a cut of chew in his mouth, counting two cords of wood, half a box of kindling, and only eleven blocks of thin peat. Pop grunted and spat, and his eyes looked worried. The meager stack of peat in our woodshed didn't look like the stuff they burned in the schoolhouse or the chapel. Ours was thin and grey and full of air. When you held it in your hand, it weighed nothing at all and instead of smoldering hot in the stove, it flamed up yellow and then dissolved into ash. Ma said we didn't have a very good piece of land because Gran didn't know what to look for when she bought it. So she'd gotten bamboozled on account of her being a woman and an out-of-towner. Gran had grown up near Aberdeen, where they burned coal and ate eels. She didn't know about peat or sheep or winter storms that could trap a family snowbound until they burned cribs and floorboards and Frostbite took their toes. Pop spat again, and then he said to the spot of saliva moistened dirt, A thief's not a thief if he steals to save himself and his own. And then he told me and Surrey to take the barrow from the woodpile and go cut as much peat as we could carry from the Cornwall's property. It was almost five o'clock, and the sun was already low in the sky, but I buttoned up my coat, and then helped tuck my little sister into her scarf and mittens. Then, we took the old barrow with the wobbly wheel, and pushed it along the hard scrabble path that led to the bone-white elms, and into the rye. Neil Farrells had got two hundred pounds sterling for the bog man dug out of their property in fifty-four, so Surrey figured we could get at least fifty for the mummified dog we dug up whilst we were stealing peat from the Cornwall's poisoned rye field. At first, we weren't sure if the university would be willing to buy, because we'd been out there stealing blocks of the Cornwall's peat. But after Pops told us to, Ma said we didn't have to feel guilty because the fields were just going to thorn anyhow. The Cornwalls were dead, and nobody would make a bid on the land because everyone knew that rye field was haunted. So that's why we were on the Cornwalls property, stealing chunks of rich, dark moss from their bog. Pete, that was going to go to waste anyway. By the time we'd filled our barrow, the wind whipping through the white elms chapped our lips and cheeks as red as beets. To my back stood the blackened field, with shadows like faces and stalks like naked bones. I buttoned my coat up high on my neck, but I could still feel it watching me. There were as many stories about the Cornwall's fields as boys in the schoolyard, but Patrick Freer's rendition was the most highly regarded. His account went like this. Gregor Cornwall's daughter Ella had been engaged to the son of a wealthy trader named Thomas Eady, which was true. Now here Patrick would lower his voice and make it husky, as if he was letting us in on a secret. Mere weeks before the wedding, Ella had got herself into trouble with the butcher's boy, got herself in a family way, and a child was set to be a bastard. So, in the secret of night, Gregor brought Ella to a woman, a witchly woman, 
who lived alone in the woods past Bone Bottom Creek. The woman who said she could get the baby out of the child's belly before it was alive, so it wouldn't count as murder, which was a mortal sin and worse than birthing a bastard. The old woman charmed Gregor and spoke to him softly with sweet, toothless breath, and she said that for the proper price it could all be done easily without a scratch or a scar. She would scrape the memory from Ella's mind so that the girl would forget everything, including her love for the butcher's boy. Now Gregor's ears prickled red and angry as he got the butcher's boy's thin, spotty hands between his daughter's legs and of the dowry that would vanish from the Edie boy. The witch stroked Gregor's cheek with her three-fingered hand and sold him a spell that would draw the girl tight back together. For an extra twelve shillings, she promised, they could even buy bloody sheets for his daughter's wedding night. But for days after swallowing the witch's draught, Ella writhed in delirium, and when at last the baby came, it was a screaming thing, dark and eyeless and not yet farmed. Gregor and his wife Maddie smothered the child to death before Ella's senses returned, but the damage had been wrought, and all three were damned. Now Ella buried the tiny body in the rye field, and then hung herself in the butcher's smokehouse with a rope they used to tie up hogs for scalding. Broken with grief, Gregor returned to the witch with his payment exactly how the old woman instructed folded into a square of linen and tied with a twist of black yarn. But, instead of silver pieces, the linen concealed a heavy pair of shearing scissors, and he killed the witch by putting the blade through her left eye and into a rotten, heathen brain. The unbaptized baby buried in the field brought a blight down upon the family. The elms grew scabs, and the rye turned black, and by the time the sheep began to birth headless lambs, Gregor and Maddie and their four sons were all stone dead, plus a handful of house servants and two negroes and a stable man. You can see why Patrick's version of events was the best loved. Ma said Patrick's father was a gambler and a drunk, so yarn spinning was in his blood. Every time he told the story, he wove in another sordid detail. And so, no matter how many times we'd heard, we all gathered round to listen whenever a new boy wondered aloud why the manse and the elm stood empty. Pop said the witch story was harsh shite. He said God sent the scourge into the rye because only godless Protestants ain't rye. We had nothing to fear, he said, being good Catholics and potato eaters. And I'd never seen a witch or knew anyone who'd knew where to find one. Least of all, liver-skinned Gregor Cornwall with his stutter and face full of moles and the whitening bone spot eating up his thin and orange hair. Cursed or not, the Cornwalls had no doubt died under terrible circumstances. And now, the house stood dark. Fat Anthony Kemp's father was a surgeon. He was also the oldest of us so he alone could recall the year the Cornwalls got sick. He insisted to have witnessed a desperate call in the night, after which his surgeon daddy had raced to the manse in the elms, where he'd been forced to saw off Mother Maddie's arms and legs after they turned black and began to fall apart. He'd sewn polishing rags tightly over all the little boy's hands, because all else failed to stop them scratching their skin right down to their bones. According to Anthony, Gregor Cornwall had clawed his own eyes clean out of his skull before his surgeon daddy could stab him with a needle full of sedative. You think an eyeball would be round and mushy like a peeled grape? said Anthony. He was sitting on the stone steps in front of the vestibule, eating a thick ham sandwich. A yellow smear of mustard adorned his upper lip. But daddy says it's not so. Anthony paused to swallow and lick his lips. He says, once it's popped, it just oozes out from under your eyelids like candle drippings. And he said the whole time old Gregor was digging around his own head, 
He had his mouth stretched wide open, just like this. Anthony stretched his jaw as far open as it would go and pulled his lips away from his teeth, eyes wide. The roll of fat beneath his chin folded against his throat and looked like a long link of sausage. Like he was going to scream, but no sound came out. Daddy says he stayed like that until they put him in the ground. We tried to imagine the horror of this as Anthony finished the last bite of sandwich and produced a cinnamon stick roll from his dinner pail. But when we found the bog dog nestled in the peat, my sister and me forgot all about Gregor Cornwall and Patrick Freer and fat Anthony Kemp and thought only about bringing the dog whole out of the ground. Fifty pounds would buy coal enough to last till Surrey was married and gone. It would buy beef dinners and new shoes and oranges and walnuts and store-bought soap that didn't burn with the sting of lye. Fifty pounds sterling. We had to be very careful with Bog Dog. We wanted to surprise Ma and Pops, so Surrey and me raised him out of the earth ourselves, very carefully, with a summer sheet that was already so torn up that Ma had been using it to squeeze cracklings out of rendering lard. We laid the sheet down in the bog, and with our fingers, we carefully cleared the black peat from around Bog Dog's shriveled up body. His legs were curled up under him and kind of fused into his belly so that he looked a little like a tanned rabbit sat on his haunches. His skin felt like leather when you touched it, but he also felt hollowed out, like bird bones. When we lifted him, he was light as a feather. We moved the dog very carefully into the barrel. Both of us huddled together so our hands made a soft scoop. But even so, we lost a piece of his tail and almost his whole left jowl. He looked like probably a spaniel or a springer, so the broken-off jowl barely changed his shape any, not like it would a boxer or a St. Bernard. But the tail was easier to notice. Through the hole in his hindquarters, you could see right down inside to tell that Bog Dog really was hollowed out, with just a little stringy webbing where his gut should have been. It looked like the inside of a jack-o'-lantern on All Hallows' Eve. To fit Bog Dog safely inside the bowl of the barrow, we emptied all the peat and sticks of elm into a heap and left the heap sitting there in the biting cold of the Cornwall's cursed bogland. When we got back to the house, Pops was angry at first because he'd abandoned the peat and firewood. But when we showed him Bog Dog, his anger left him and he wondered aloud how many pouches of chew it would buy, and whether or not the Edies were selling the eight-week piglets now, or if he'd have to wait till spring. We talked over the tail and jowl with Ma, whether to leave the tail off or try to stitch it back, and Ma decided the missing parts probably wouldn't decrease Bog Dog's value. The university people might not even notice, and if they did, we could just give them back the parts and maybe they could put them back on with a special tape or thread. Maybe there was even such a thing as special mummy glue. We put Bog Dog in the corner between the stove and the door, where we could all see him. He almost looked like he was guarding the door. The missing jowl even gave him a kind of ferocious look, even though his body was clumped together and melted looking. Siri watched him over her spoon while she slurped cabbage soup. She asked Pops why Bog Dog had no insides, and he said, The peat ain't it out of him, just like a worm eats the insides of a rotten log. Siri looked down at her dirty fingernails and asked if the peat could do that to her, and Pops said it would take hundreds and hundreds of lifetimes buried in the peat for that to happen, so not to worry. Then he got up to spit tobacco juice in the spitball by the stove, and Ma told him she hoped that chew was worth fifty silver pieces and ten years of frozen yearlings and pneumonia. Pops looked at her and spit again to be defiant, but he spit in the ash bucket, far away from Bog Dog. That night, the storm blew in, and it was as bad as Pops' toe had promised. 
Grains of ice thwacked against the windows and cold seeped through the glass and under the doors and crept to the place in the roof where the stovepipe poked out. The next morning, when Pops braved the twenty better steps to the woodshed, he was able to carry back everything we had in a single trip. On the third day, we ran out of peat. On the sixth, we ran out of wood. On the eighth day, we pulled the legs off of our kitchen chairs and fed them into the wood stove. And Ma screamed at me and Surrey for throwing everything out of the barrow. Her voice got higher and higher, and pretty soon there weren't any words in it. Pop slapped her cheek and she got quiet and went to sit by the stove, even though by then the heat coming off of it was almost imaginary. Surrey was so thin and so small. The cold bit into her worse than any of us. Her hands and feet turned red, and she complained they ached her so she couldn't sleep. Her arms and hands felt hot, but she couldn't get to feeling warm no matter how many feather beds I piled on top of her. When I tried to slip in and warm her with my own body, her eyes were foggy, and her skin was grey and stayed dented where I pushed on her. She curled up like a dried-out spider and would not uncurl to eat or to wash. When all the shelves and baseboards were burned up, my little sister stopped answering the questions Ma called to her quilts. Pops scooped her up in his arms, a cold apple turnover with only the tips of yellow hair poking out. Pops bundled her down by the stove and threw bog dog on the fire. Bogdog didn't light right away. For a few moments he just lay there in the hot ashes, his dog face suddenly seeming very sorrowful. And above Surrey's swaddled quilts, Pop's face fell, and his eyes grew moist. Then, all of a sudden, there was a loud popping sound and Bogdog burst into flames. Or rather, he burst into smoke. Thick, yellowish smoke poured from the cavities of his mouth and eyes and the broken-off place where his tail should have been. It kept pouring and pouring, as thick as the banks of fog that roll across the bog when the temperature drops suddenly and the air is heavy with wetness. It billowed out of the stove and sank into a roiling blanket just above the floorboards, then came up from the ground until it filled the room and clogged my eyes and ears and made my mouth taste like raw bread and rotting things. I tried to feel my way toward the door, desperate for the relief of air, but I hadn't taken a single step before my head began to swim and black-brown flowers bloomed behind my eyes. And then there was nothing but blackness. When I woke up, Ma and Pops were both dead. They lay on the floor, shoulders touching, as if they had kept each other from going alone into the dark. One of Mom's arms was bent behind her back, and the shoulder was a lump of unnatural knobs. Pops had wet himself, but I didn't have time to think about them because of what happened to Surrey. When I was little, I suffocated a moth by keeping it in a jar. Not on purpose. I was a kid. I didn't know any better. The moth was so weirdly docile at first. It just let me scoop it right into the jar. After a day or two, I realized why the moth had been so sluggish. It was plump with eggs. And now it was squeezing them from its body into the smooth glass of the jar's floor. Every day there were more eggs. The moth's body pulsated almost imperceptibly with the effort, not moving or eating. I only knew it was alive because of the way the legs clung to the blade of grass I dropped down inside. When it died, the legs curled under and the moth fell over to one side, bending one wing and one antenna beneath a tiny head. What the thing was... The eggs kept coming out. For another two days, the dead moth's body continued to push out the eggs. 
a pile of malformed translucent orbs that would never hatch. It turned my stomach, and for some reason the whole thing disturbed me terribly. I had witnessed the dark face of nature, the one that puts maggots into a dead cat's eyes and sends babies into the world with their insides spilling out of their bellies. I still dream about that moth sometimes. In the ten years since, I had seen nothing so grotesque until I awoke from the smoke-induced blackout to find Surrey's head sewn onto the body of a mummified dog with crooked stitches of green and vermilion quilting yarn. And with the same crude stitches fastened to the pale, slender neck of my little sister was the shriveled and eyeless head of Bog Dog. The creature with Bog Dog's head and the body of my sister was the lesser monstrosity. As horrifying as it looked, and no matter how much I wanted to, I could not stop looking. It just sat in one place and quaked. I could hear its organs clicking and squelching inside as my sister's heart and lungs and intestines tried to decipher commands from a dead brain like a dried and shriveled pecan. It urinated on itself, unable to make a sound. So I turned my attention to the other, the creature with my sister's fair-haired head and sprinkle of freckles and pink-red mouth that wouldn't stop screaming. I pulled the thing from the hot ashes, touching it with my hands, and slapped away the sparks and embers because I thought that would make Suri stop making the noises she was making, shrieking and gulping and broken screaming sob noises that would have made me believe I had gone mad. If I did not already believe that, But the screaming continued, even after the last red flake of the fire was snuffed. She never moved her gaze from me, her large, moist eyes rolling and imploring me to help her. I did not know how to help her. She would try to speak and remind herself that only gurgling sounds could be coaxed from the ragged stumps of her vocal cords. A reminder would start her screaming again, either with pain or fear, or because above us loomed the face of death which could not be far from us now. The red lips of tissue around her eyes began to purple over, and her gurgles became wheezes. The rivulets of blood that trickled at first from between the green and vermilion yarns slowed, and then stopped. Her eyes glass. I felt myself heaving, but I could not know whether I wanted to sob or vomit. I knew I should hold her. She was dying. So, I carefully scooped the little thing up, ignoring how the body crumbled away from my fingers, how Surrey's head flopped to the side, and then caught against the stitches choking off her screams as the vocal cords pinched against those green and vermilion yarns. I carried her out the door and past the woodshed and down the hard scrabble path, my stocking feet making tracks in the snow like a yoked ox. I carried her screaming all the way to the patch of bone-white elms, because she'd always thought of them as beautiful and laid her gently down in the cleanest of the snowbanks. I stayed with her until the screaming stopped, and when I was certain she'd frozen to death, I used Pop's pocket knife to slit the yarn stitches and put her head away from the stump neck of Bog Dog. It's odd to think of how seldom you look at your hands. The palms, I mean. I suppose you do look at the backs of your hands an awful lot. But they rarely do 
anything wicked. I didn't notice the tracks of green and vermilion that crisscrossed my own until the morning after I buried my little sister's head in the frozen earth of the Cornwall's haunted rye field, while the elms watched me with trunks like naked bones. You've been listening to Bog Dog by Saris Nikita. Saris is a writer of horror and science fiction short stories and novels, many of which are set in the American South. If you enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to me. If you'd like to hear more lengthy tales, be sure to take a look at my audiobooks, available now on audible.com. If you'd like to hear a premium, ad-free edition of tonight's and all our other episodes, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com, where you can become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive, dating back to 2012, including past episodes of this program, all of our other shows, and hundreds of standalone releases, all of them ad-free and available to download or stream. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You'll find me personally on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as well. Until next week, listener, when we meet up once again atop the Horror Hill for yet another Dance with Darkness, I bid you good night, sleep tight, listener, and whatever you do, if you hear scratching at your door, don't open it. The darkness may have found you, but it's up to you to let it in. You've been listening to Horror Hill, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, as well as a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Jason Hill, unless otherwise noted. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors, sound design, original music, and final mixing and mastering provided by Felipe Ojeda, under the guidance of executive producer and director Craig Groshek. The program's logo was created by Craig Groshek, and this week's artwork provided by Omega Black, unless otherwise noted. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at horrorhill at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of the show. If you enjoyed what you've heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave us a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and Horror Hill on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, Do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon to get more spooky tales from me and the crew, and another episode of this program each and every week. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing, and leave a kind word or request. If you can never get enough spooky stories and can't wait until next week for more, and haven't already, Be sure to check out Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on YouTube for hundreds of free audio horror stories, including more performances from yours truly, 
and consider supporting us by becoming a patron at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next week with more frightening fiction to haunt your dreams. Until next time, I'm Jason Hill, and you've been listening to the Horror Hill Podcast. Good evening, and sweet dreams. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.